So it was as if the flag itself not only represented hate, but that the flag could actually hate. So again, by removing the flag, all they got was the removal of the flag. As if removing the flag can change a person's heart. Or how can they think of it as a victory? It seems shallow. It is very shallow, and that is that is their victory. That's all the victory that they're going to have because their paradigm was a worldly to begin with. It was it was a socio political paradigm that served as the impetus for them petitioning to have the flag removed, as opposed to a theological paradigm, which I adhere to as it relates to the flag issue in that removing the flag doesn't change a single heart. And that's what you want. Your victory is in getting people's hearts changed. The victory is in getting people to change their mind about getting a white person to change their mind about how they think about black people and removing a flag doesn't do any of that. I mean, look back in Atlanta right now, back in Atlanta right now, and an extension of the Confederate flag issue is you have a group of liberal black politicians who are petitioning right now, Governor Nathan Deal of Georgia to deface Stone Mountain. Uh, some of you may have actually been there uh, before to actually deface the carving, that entire carving, that Confederate carving from the very face of Stone Mountain. Now, as as ridiculous as that sounds, that car that carving, by the way, I believe, has been around for oh about seventy some odd years, somewhere around there, I think. Um, so the question I have is, why did that carving not offend anyone before now? Why, why, why all of a sudden is the Confederate flag blow up a, uh, 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 a, a, a sort of a badge of honor now to go about and, and seek the, the effacing of this uh, carving on, on the side of Stone Mountain when that carving was there long before this whole Confederate flag issue uh, blew up? It's like, uh, yeah, they want to remove Thomas Jefferson statue or memorabilia or whatever in D.C. It, it kind of reminds me of two guy, uh, two kids fighting playground, and one of them punches the other one out, and they have a victory because they knocked him out. But both of them still go away as combatants, and the kid who got punched in the face, he has no intentions of reconciling with the kid that punched him, right. and the kid who punched him has no intentions of reconciling with the other child. And so all it is is, is a boxing match is it, it, what it is. It's two people fighting each other, but it's not going to bring, that never would bring reconciliation. They haven't changed their opinion at all. They nope. just feel defeated, which is just going to make them want to redouble their efforts right. for what they believe. And so we're just... We're just in a uh, endless boxing match of, of wins and losses, but we're not reconciled. It's, it's, it's a cycle, and and the the, the reason uh, reconciliation again is 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 not the goal, and was never the goal of the movement to get the uh, to get the Confederate flag banished. That was all 
political. Uh, you had people trying to score political points. I know even Governor Haley here uh, in South Carolina, um, it was a political issue for her. Um, and, and people are still trying to make that a political issue so that they can put it on their resume when they run for re-election that I supported the removal of the Confederate flag. Uh, so reconciliation, people will say that, yeah, we, we want to do this because it'll help heal our nation or whatever. Well, no, it won't. No, it won't. Matter of fact, um, not long after that, uh, 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 we got word that uh, the flag had been uh, lowered here uh, uh, at the state house in uh, South Carolina. I think we were either coming home from work one day, uh, but there's a house right on the corner that's uh, off the street from where we live that had not just one rebel flag, but two hanging outside his house. He's got one hanging out down from the ceiling of his front porch and then another hanging from the ceiling of his garage. And you know what? We drive by that house every day coming home from work. And you would think from some people that, well, you better remove that flag because, you know, when you drive by there, your car is going to break down or or something like that, as if the flag has some sort of supernatural power to, you know, just cause people to just hate one another. But no, it doesn't. The flag is an inanimate object and doesn't do any of that. If I hate you, it's because I decide in my heart to hate you. So it's politically driven. It's reparation driven. So to some extent. To, to some, to, for guilt, guilt trip purposes. I would say also it's just anger driven because uh, there's an element of our culture that's just angry and they use whatever means that's available to them to be angry at whomever it is they want to be angry. And so this becomes the latest. It just becomes another means that allows me to be angry because I'm an angry person. Would that be fair? Absolutely fair. Right. And, and so Somebody it, to hate. And, and speaking on the whole anger thing, Rick, there's a, um, there's a, a belief out there right now that uh, the, the degree of... Uh, of uh, degree of righteousness, if, uh, for lack of a better word, the degree of righteousness in my cause uh, opens the door, gives me permission to be equally angry. My anger, uh, it is okay for my anger to equal the level of the righteousness of the cause that I have uh, placed in that, uh, in that thing that I'm so angry about. So whether it's the flag, whether it's the Redskins or whatever, uh, it's, it's okay for me to be angry about that because I've determined that that's wrong and you should be angry about stuff that's wrong. i got a couple more questions for you. All righty. I have a precious white daughter and I want her to be married someday, but I'm afraid she may marry interracially. Interracial marriage code 
within the white community means black and white. It rarely means Asian or mm-hmm. Native American or, or Indian or, or whatever. It, it, it means dark skin, white skin, marrying each other. And I, I'm ashamed by this. It's an embarrassment. I asked a friend one time years ago if your daughter married uh, or had the opportunity to marry one or two people. One person was white and unregenerate, and the other person was black and authentically, uh, for the sake of this of the discussion, regenerate and passionate for the Lord. So if your daughter, if your white daughter can marry a black believer or a white unbeliever, which would you want her to marry? And he said a white unbeliever, and uh, which is stunning to me. But that is the black-white racial divide. But when we good white folk talk about interracial marriage, most of the time, it's really just what we're saying is black and white. Yep. We're not talking about our Asian culture or our Hispanic culture. So give me your top two bullet points on that one, Daryl. Well, again, my top my top bullet point is going to be the, 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 the same number one bullet point that I've been reiterating throughout this entire conversation. And that is that there is uh, no distinction between uh, that uh, that white unbeliever and that black believer in that they were both created in the image of God. And uh, number two, my number two bullet, I would point them to what the scripture says. Um, a favorite passage, uh, Rick, that I like to refer to in discussing and debating or having discourse around these uh, racial issues is Acts 17.26. That's Acts 17.26, which reads, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of of their habitation. Uh, the word mankind there in the Greek is the word ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnic ethnicity. Uh, so it's not just simply talking about population. It's talking about people groups. It is from one man. That, that one man was Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate, created each of them, created that white believer, white unbeliever, as well as that black believer. Uh, so again, point number one, they were both created in the image of God. Point number two, it was God himself who determined that that, went, that one man would be white and that one man would be black. So in that scenario, in that theoretical, that person doesn't have an issue with the black man. That person's got an issue with God who created that black man. One of the rationalizations why a, a a black person or a white person would not marry a black person is that it would just create hardship on them because of a culture that was racist, and it would create hardship on their children. Now, that argument has been weakened in the last 40 years because there has been one of the interesting things, and it's, it's actually on, there's a positive to, positiveness to this, is that like my children, for example, they're not raised in a racist environment. Mm-hmm. And so they do not see color mm-hmm. the way that we saw color mm-hmm. when we came up as kids. But if somebody presented that argument to you, what would you say to them besides the fact that it's 
almost a moot point. Well, you know, uh, let me just give a practical example. You know, I'm from Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta is consistently recognized as the number one city in America for blacks who want to be successful. You can come to Atlanta if you're black, well, if you're anybody, but we're talking about black stuff. You can come to Atlanta if you're black and if you have any semblance of ambition, you can be successful at anything in Atlanta. So that person to whom you pose the question, actually they might want to have their daughter marry a black man <laughs> from Atlanta. Because if you're black in Atlanta, you're, you're probably doing pretty darn well, to As be John honest. John Calvin said, good luck with that. <laughs> I, 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 you know, his argument was as bogus as you know an African-American making an argument for being African-American. There's an underlying a, a, agenda. So you can have a response that he can marry a successful black person, but ultimately it just boils down to just deep-rooted prejudice. It's sin. I don't like black people. It's just sin. Yeah. It's a sin issue. Always has been. And the only solution is to address it as a sin issue. Talk about race issues within the black culture. That that exists. And that, that is the uh the well, there's one there's many topics within the black culture, if you will, that aren't spoken about, but that's one of them. That there's intra there's intra race racism. Uh there is still discrimination by other blacks, by blacks towards other blacks. Uh, there's, there's all types. There's, there's dark-skinned blacks who don't like light-skinned blacks. There's light-skinned blacks who don't like... it's not dark enough. Because it's not dark enough. So black is the identity. There's black, Rick, then there's blackness. And your blackness is all too often defined by your darkness. So... And this is intra, so I'm talking about within black American culture, generally speaking, let me say it again, generally speaking, there is a, there is a racism within the black race that is often rooted in a hatred of each other's skin complexion. So you may be too light, you may be black. Racially, racially, but you're too light-skinned. You're not black enough. You're not black enough. So when theologians speak on racial issues today, usually it's something that happens in the culture, like Ferguson. Or what are you hearing, without naming names, what are you hearing? How do you, how do you hear that, and what do you think about how they come at giving voice to the racial problems in our country that are usually stem from some triggering event? Yeah, usually, Rick, what I hear and how I hear about those types of things is that normally the headline leads in with the racial description of the of the person who's at the center of the unrest. Uh, for instance, uh, whether it's uh, Ferguson, what happened in Ferguson, or whether it was uh, Trayvon Martin, or whether it was Eric Garner, or whoever it might be, the leading is always that it was a black that the victim was black. Uh, and what I'm hearing from these theologians is that our, uh, our resources and our energies within the church should be focused on that place, whether it's Ferguson, Missouri, New York City, Chicago, or wherever, 
because we got a black kid, we got a black man, we had a black male up there who was murdered or who was treated unfairly or who was jailed uh, without cause or who was pulled over for a traffic stop uh, through racial profiling. And because that person was black, we need to get on that. So, again, that's what makes it a racial issue when the threshold ought to be was God's moral standard violated? I don't care if the person was black or white, but was God's moral standard violated in any way? If it was violated, if God's moral standard was violated, and by moral standard I mean was one image, one person created in the image of God the victim of, the, of another person who was created in the image of God? Was God's moral standard violated here? That should be the question, not whether the victim was black. Or not. So your starting point is theologically rooted, specifically image of God, and you're saying their starting point is is racism as the issue. So they're trying to solve the racism problem because that's their starting point. There was a, a white policeman who abused or victimized a, a, a black individual. So there's racism racism involved. We need to solve the racism problem. You're saying there was sin committed. Right. Exactly. So with, with me, it's always a sin issue. So you know what? Police body cams, okay, fine. So now you'll have sin on tape. Now you have video of the sin. But you're still at the issue. The, the crux of the issue is still sin. Uh, and, and you're not going to remedy a sin issue by saying, okay, hey, I captured this incident with my phone. Let's convict this police officer and send him to jail for life. Okay. He can be sitting in a jail cell for the rest of his life, but that doesn't that still doesn't mean that he's going to be in, on the inside of himself joyously celebrating the fact that he actually killed a black person. You haven't changed his heart. His heart hasn't been swayed one bit. But you okay, you got the thing on video, sure. He, you you got him convicted, fine. If a white person kills a white person, you go through the judicial process and let's say somebody's convicted to go to jail. If a black person kills a black person, you could go through the judicial process and somebody goes to jail. If a white person kills a black person, you destroy a town. Yeah. You burn it down. <laughs> you burn the town. That's what happened in Ferguson. Right. I mean, come on. Who, who, who'd heard of Ferguson, Missouri before that? I hadn't. I'd never heard of Ferguson. So in all three scenarios, there was sin committed, let's say three murders, white murdered white, black murdered black, and then white murdered black. Mm -hmm. All three scenarios should be treated the same. There's three heinous sins committed, and we should work within the judicial system to punish those who done that. Of course, the judicial system would, would say with the hope of rehabilitation at some point, but mm -hmm. that's a whole other discussion. But in one of those scenarios, we destroy a town. We turn cars over. We right. throw firebombs through. Right. We, we loot and we pillage. We steal. And so what you're hearing, the Christian communities speaking out against these crimes, these sin crimes, they're both sins and they're crimes. They're breaking the law. Primarily, they're sinning. They are trying, you're saying they're, they come at it from trying to resolve the racial problem? They, they come at it from that angle, but I have to say, Rick, in all, in all honesty, what I'm seeing as these events occur, to the extent that the church does get involved, a lot of these churches are just opportunists, to be honest with you. This is an opportunity for a church 
or in a lot of cases, a, an individual pastor to get their face on television, to get their name out there where they were never involved in the community before then. Never. Now, these are black churches I'm talking about. These are black churches who were never, ever engaged with these communities before, uh, for instance, in the case of Ferguson, Missouri, before Ferguson was burned to the ground almost. So in uh, the cultural language for what you're describing is optics. This is a time for, for great optics, and so there's something that happens. Though I show up so my face is on camera and do say whatever I need to say, and then I leave, and of course I haven't, there's no, there's no long-term resolution. Nothing. But you're also saying they weren't even involved in the first place. No. But don't you think that there is some merit to some high-profile person showing up and speaking into it, even mean, though they're not, even though it's just in the moment? I would say... I mean, I, I would say that if I heard about something that I wasn't aware of before, and it was heinous or whatever, I would want to speak into it. I'm not sure if I could stay with it or not, because I've got so many obligations, so many things on my plate. I can't speak... I can't be a part of a long-term solution of so many, but so many problems. I would say that there is there is some merit to it, to the extent that the motive is pure. If the motive of the pastor who represents that congregation, if his motive is pure in getting involved uh, to whatever extent he gets involved, then yeah, there is some merit there. But if the motive is not right, if the motive is selfish, if the motive is self-promoting, then, then no, there is no merit there. I mean, there was, there was a point in time where when an injustice occurred in a black neighborhood, in a black community, especially in the inner city, which at this point in time, back in the day, all black communities were inner, were inner city. There were no suburban black communities like there are mm-hmm. now. But there was a time if something went down in a black community, they ought, the, the, the members of that community automatically congregated at the church. They went to the church. They went to see what does the pastor have to say about this? What does the pastor have to say about how we should respond to this injustice that has been meted out against us. But now, that's not the case. The church is secondary, in many cases, tertiary to whatever the issue might be. Let's burn the town down, and then let's go interview the pastor on camera, as opposed to the pastor being out there, sacrificing himself in front of that drugstore, in front of that... um, uh, beauty shop saying, no, you're not going to touch this place. You're not, cause that's not right. I don't care what's, I don't care what's been done. It's not right for you to retaliate regardless of what the, see, there was a time when the pastor would have done that, but now it's an, it's an afterthought in a lot of cases. You, you'll see the pastor on Fox or CNN now as a commentator, not as a uh, facilitator, a bridge uh, towards resolution. You'll see him on uh, some cable news channel being interviewed about what what has already happened as opposed to being out front trying to prevent it in the first place. Daryl, I have uh, one, I think I have one more question. What frustrates you about white folk? <laughs> <laughs> now that's a question I've never been asked before, Rick. And I you may... have been speaking candidly about your own. <laughs> 
But to take your theological premise, we're all made in the image of God. Right. And so there are another group of image of God people who happen to have lighter uh, skin color. They have a role to play in this. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, to answer your question the way you posed it, uh, and I've never considered that because I've never been asked that question, but I do have an answer for you. If I were to answer what frustrates me, again, in general, about uh, white people, it is that they seem to be, uh, uh, in the context of all that we've been talking about today as far as racial issues and and race issues for that matter, they seem to be too quick to give in to the pressure to feel guilty about something that they're not responsible for. It's what I call the lawn chair mindset. They, They fold up as quickly as a lawn chair does. And they don't they don't stand their ground. They don't uh, they don't take offense. And I mean, when I say it take offense, they don't assume the offensive posture uh, in defending of themselves against uh, an argument that has no merit whatsoever. Uh, instead, they easily succumb to that social and political pressure, and they cave uh, to this agenda driven uh, paradigm that we can all see uh, they are not at fault for. Uh, So if you're asking me what frustrates me about white people is that they don't, they don't, too many of them do not stand their ground uh, in defending themselves against all this. I think part of that, here's a response from a white guy. Part of what you're describing is, is the path of least resistance. It's just like, one, what would it take to even go against this or to speak into it? Part of it is it's so overpowering because they have media, they have virtually all the media support. And so even though they're a small number, whether we're talking about the black agenda, the gay agenda, or whatever the agenda, it doesn't matter what the agenda is. They have they have the voice. Mm-hmm. And then part of it is, I don't even know how. Uh, I don't have a platform. I don't have a voice. It's almost like the way some people feel about voting. You mm-hmm. know, they say, why vote? My vote doesn't count. Mm-hmm. So you are choosing to speak into it. What are some of the things you have in mind, or do you have things in mind as you want to continue to address this? I do not hear, I'm not sure if there's any other voice out there that's communicating the things the way that you are communicating them. Do you know of other people? Yeah, there are, uh, let me just say this, and I say this uh, definitively, there are other black conservatives uh, out there like myself, and I don't mean just conservative in the social, fiscal, or political stance. What I'm talking about is that their starting point uh, and my starting point uh, is something that we all have in common, uh, and that is God's Word, that God's Word is the definitive answer and solution to every single issue and ill that this entire world, not just America, but this entire world uh, faces. But as you alluded to just a second ago, Rick, uh, we don't have the platform that we, we meaning uh, cons- black conservatives especially, right. uh, don't have the platform that those uh, who, do- who do not uh, ascribe to the same worldview as us have. Uh, so we, when, you, when, you, when you talk about, you know, uh, 
what ideas I might have uh, in, in, in sort of uh, getting to a place where we are more vocal and have more of a, a footprint, uh, if you will, in addressing these issues, I guess it's like everything else. Um, we have to continue to believe that God is sovereign in all these things and that uh, his word in the end is going to triumph. Uh, but to the extent that we do exist, we must be consistent in hammering home the point that this isn't about racism. This isn't, a, this isn't about some ism. Okay, this is a sin issue. If you want to put an ism on the end of it, let's call it sinism, because racism is an attitude of the heart. And for better or worse, in this case, worse, the attitudes that we possess in our heart are attitudes that we choose volitionally to possess. And that is sin. It is sin. No amount of reparations, restitution, recompense, uh, none of that is going to, in the long run, affect anything uh, from the standpoint of making us any better positionally than we are now as it relates to race relations, as the term goes, until we acknowledge that at the root of all of this is sin. It is sin. And we must Hammer that home. Otherwise, it's like running on a treadmill. We're putting forth all this energy and going nowhere and going absolutely nowhere. We can remove all the flags in the world, but it's not going to change our hearts. All right, Daryl, that was that was fun. Yeah, I liked it. I'm hyped, man. I think I can probably walk back to Atlanta after, <laughs> after this. <laughs> Daryl Harrison. Your perspective is theologically refreshing. It's, it's almost rare in our culture today. So thank you for doing this, Daryl. Thank you, Rick. Uh, we will probably divide this up into a couple of podcasts and get it out to the folks. All Thanks right. for listening, podcasters, and God bless. We'll see you again at the next podcast. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.